now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In this special release episode, Just Science interviews Dr. Hope Smiley McDonald and Connor Brooks about the Bureau of Justice Statistics Census of Medical Examiners and Coroners. The last census of medical examiners and coroners was conducted in 2004 and stands as one of the most important resources for budget makers and policy changers. Since then, the realm of MDI has changed dramatically. With that in mind, BJS and RTI International are working tirelessly to create a useful tool that captures all of the nuances of this field. Listen in as our guests discuss the development of the survey, the types of data being collected, and the impact that the survey will have on the MDI community. Please visit www.bjscmec.org for more information. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm your host, John Morgan, with the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice, and we're very uh, thankful to NIJ for the funding of this podcast and all of the work of the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. To learn more about all of our work, please visit our website at www.forensiccoe.org. Today on the podcast, we have with us uh, two guests who are going to be talking about a survey that's very, very important to an, a sector of the uh, forensic science community, and that is the Bureau of Justice Statistics uh, Survey of medical examiners and coroner's offices. Our guests are Dr. Uh, Hope Smiley McDonald, my colleague at RTI International. Hope is the uh, project director of this program, but she's done research in drug courts, HIV risk behaviors, employment, health, mental health, women and substance abuse, community corrections populations. She's also the project director for the National Forensic Laboratory Information System. That is uh, a DEA program that I think a lot of forensic scientists out there who listen to the program are familiar with. And we also have with us Connor Brooks, who is actually a program manager at the Bureau of Justice Statistics. In addition to uh, managing the Census of Medical Examiners and Coroners, he's also managing the Census of Publicly Funded Forensic Crime Laboratories, the Firearm Inquiry Statistics Programs, and has served on the Federal Medical Legal Death Investigation Working Group. And prior to coming to BJS, he was a crime analyst for the Burlington Police Department in Burlington, Vermont. Welcome, Connor, and welcome, Hope. So let's start with you, Connor and let's talk about, uh, it's been a few years, 2004 was the last census, and so BJS is now interested in, in renewing the data relevant to medical examiners and coroners. Yes, so it's been, uh, 2005 was the last time we conducted the survey for a 2004 reference year. We're aiming to conduct it again for a 2018 reference year. We've updated the survey to have more relevant questions, emerging topics. We're trying to make sure that the MDI field is understood, uh, information is available, and we're also trying to learn maybe what resources could be used in the field. 
to cut down their caseload or to have a uh, more efficient workload. And Hope, obviously you've done a fair amount of research relative to the criminal justice community, and so you're very, very familiar with these kinds of surveys. I assume you're very, very excited to be a part of the Census of Medical Examiners and Coroners. We're going to call CMEC. Yes, for sure. You know, one of the things that's always occurred to me about CMEC is that we use it all the time. It's the definitive resource when you need good statistics, and actually BJS's data collections are the go-to resource if you need basic statistics about populations in jails, prisons, um, probation and parole. You know, BJS has always been the go-to, and for the MDI community, the CMEC is that definitive source, and so when the solicitation went out, Jerry Rapero Miller and I were really excited to apply for it because to us it's one of the most important resources out there for budget makers, um, policy administrators to be able to see, get a temperature check of where things are in terms of budget staffing and caseload. And I suspect it's changed a lot since 2004. And as Connor mentioned, we're also going to have lots of new measures that will kind of get a sense of the infrastructure that's in place to respond to emergent issues. Sure. And the 2004 data set was quite definitive. Uh, you know, there were 2,000 medical examiner coroner offices that responded to the survey at the time. Uh, actually, RTI did that survey. And Jerry and Kevin Strom also uh, were involved in the survey at that point. But yeah, I mean, a lot has changed. And a lot of the listeners here uh, to Just Science, actually, we've talked about some of these issues, such as, you know, ways to try to improve the number of forensic pathologists available for medical legal death investigation. And toxicologists, too. I think there's also, you know, a shortage there. But the forensic pathologist is a huge concern. I mean, there's some aging out among those that are forensic pathologists in the field now. And of course, medical schools churn out lots of doctors every year, but forensic pathology is one of those fields that requires something in addition to the regular residency. Yeah. So one of the reasons we're doing this particular podcast at this time is that the data instrument is about to be released. And I'd like to highlight that to all of our listeners that uh, we want to try to get as as strong a data collection as possible. Connor, I know that that is a major objective for BJS, is to try to get a a high-quality data set here. Yes. In the last census, we had about a 86% response rate overall, which is pretty good. We'd like it to be as high as possible. In the last go-around, medical examiners and coroners in Louisiana were not included because of Hurricane Katrina at the time, so they weren't able to answer. So that also drove down a bit the response rate, hopefully this time everyone will be able to answer. The higher the response rate is, the more representative it is, the less margin for error there is, and the statistics will just be more accurate. Absolutely. One of the strategies that we're doing to try to make sure we get as strong a response rate as possible? It will be administered at first through the web. So we'll send out the survey packets um, that will include login credentials, And eventually, any non-responders will get a survey packet that would include the paper version. So it'll be multi-mode. We'll also include several prompts throughout the administration that would include postcards, letters. We'll also call offices to make certain that they're aware that we haven't received their response yet. We'll be at conferences like the International Association of Medical Examiners and Coroners and the National Association of Medical Examiners um, through RTI, not through CMEC, but we'll be there, and of course we'll promote it there. 
the podcast, of course, yes, is a course, huge, yeah. um, mm-hmm. a huge part of this too. And then I think we'll have outreach to the state associations, coroners and medical examiner associations. We have kind of a full court press, I feel, for CMEC. One of the things we're trying to emphasize too is by providing us their data, they're advocating for themselves. BJS isn't really an advocacy organization. We collect statistics, but through providing us with their data, they can help make the case that they might need to hire more pathologists or technicians, whatever the case happens to be. Connor, I think that's a really good point because BJS does provide very definitive data sets to the criminal justice community. You know, I think that the offices spend a lot of time, I'm sure every last one of the 2,000 or however many get counted this time, spend uh, a great deal of their time and effort trying to justify, well, why do I have this budget? Why do I have this kind of staffing? And this is going to be the gold standard against which any kind of decision-making is, is, is occurring, not just at the national level, but at the local level. I think that's right. And um, other data collections that BJS does, such as the uh, Law Enforcement Administrative Statistics Survey, LEMAS, that's been used by police departments to justify the ratio for the number of police officers they have for the population that they serve. So similarly, the CMEC can be used to justify how much staff they need for the population that they're serving. And that's true across all of the different kinds of of coroner and medical examiner offices. I know uh, there are certainly very large offices that are even statewide offices, but there are a lot of small and rural agencies out there, and we want to get everybody uh, to respond because everybody has their own unique concerns here. Going back to the idea of not enough forensic pathologists, one of the topics that we heard come up in the expert panel review was the pay. Forensic pathologists often are not making the same that they could make when they go into private sector, because they're public servants, is my understanding. So one of the measures that we're including on this is the minimum and maximum pay for these pathologists, and we measure this for a few key staff roles in the um, offices. And that's new for this survey? It is new for this survey. BJS has included a similar measure for that on the crime lab survey that BJS also administers. So we use similar language, but that measure really came from the field. One of the things that you know we really tried to do is ask the field what's relevant, and that was a huge concern of the field to, to have salary across forensic pathologists, coroners, medical legal death investigators, and those are the eyes and ears of the coroner or the medical examiner, and um, I think there are concerns about what they're paid given what they do. So yeah, those minimum and maximum salaries are included. And then other thing that we've included would be investigative teams, specialized teams that can look at particular types of death. So for example, overdose or poisonings, um, that's a big concern these days with the opioid epidemic in some jurisdictions. Yeah, so I remember from the 2004 survey, and uh, I, I noticed that at the time, especially in the larger systems, there was about maybe 50 to 60 percent of them went to toxicological screening. Some of the smaller jurisdictions, I don't believe, were able to do that, I assume for resource reasons. And uh, it'll be really interesting to see how that's evolved with respect to the opioid epidemic and novel psychoactive substances and how many of them are doing it and are able to resource that appropriately. Yeah, especially in rural jurisdictions where you have coroners who are elected and are paid pretty low amounts of money each year for their overall budget. And then, you know, they might not even have their own freestanding office. A lot of these jurisdictions are operating out of the funeral parlor. I think it's a huge issue. One of the measures that we included on the survey is whether they have 
access to the internet independent of a personal device. So that came out of our expert panel in April. And, you know, it, it might be surprising that we would include something like that on this survey, especially in this day and age in 2019. But according to our expert panel members and then all of the cognitive interviews that came after, because once we drafted the survey, we wanted to test it with the field and make sure things were worded in the way that they should be and would capture the data that we wanted to include. And that question stood out as something that was really relevant even now. Yeah, one of the interesting things in the uh, census previously was how many of the agencies were able to use NCIC. And it certainly has changed because in 2004, medical examiner and coroners weren't even allowed to access NCIC. I notice you all have a set of questions that you're planning that are around a number of different systems that are national systems like NamUs, which did not even exist in 2004. Yeah, exactly. So um, there are lots of different resources that we're looking at in this particular administration, including um, databases such as criminal history databases, fingerprint databases, prescription drug monitoring programs. And of course, with the latter, that's going to vary by state. Um, there are different um, policies that states have with their PMPs for allowing medical examiners and quarters to have access. So I think that'll be an interesting policy statement that might be able to be extrapolated from this data collection because clearly with the opioid epidemic that could be really helpful in an investigation. I think one of the huge resource issues is the information management system. So back in 2005 or 2004 for the reference year, it was roughly a third of all coroners and medical examiner offices had some sort of computerized system to manage their records. We asked that question in the NIFLA survey, you know, in 2017, and that number hadn't really changed much. With coroners, I think it's hard because they're elected, and so, you know, record retention and, I guess, passing those records to the next coroner, I'm not sure that there's always a seamless process there. We, we ask a lot of questions about the information management systems as well as their infrastructure in place for record archiving. So where do they keep these hard copies? Because a lot of coroners and medical examiners are still very much paper-oriented with death certificates and that sort of thing. So we are asking a question about where those documents are kept. I know the other thing that we're going to be uh, including, uh, we're planning to include, is ORI number. Right. With the ORI number, that might open up additional resources for these offices to access databases that they might have to contract through a neighboring or coexisting agency to have access to those databases. The ORI number basically represents their authorization to access certain kinds of important national databases. Right. If they didn't have an ORI number, they might not be able to access that directly, and they might have to rely on, say, the police department or another law enforcement agency in the area to mm -hmm. have access to these databases. So we want to find out who has one, and from there we can sort of other agencies such as um, BJA or NIJ can maybe get an idea of who needs resources and what can we do to get them those resources. Sure. It's an, it's an example of kind of how they're evolving with respect to their access, not only to the Internet, but to all the different resources that might be available to them to do their work. The other thing that I think is really interesting, there was some data collection about accreditation and certification on the old survey. So can you all give us some insight into what was collected before and what your intentions are going forward there? You know, there's been a big push at the federal level to increase accreditation across 
coroners and medical examiner offices. And of course, the two main accrediting bodies would be the National Association of Medical Examiners and the International Association of Coroners and Medical Examiners. But it takes a lot of resources to get those accreditations in place. And you know, one of the key things for medical examiners, for example, is to have enough forensic pathologists to handle the caseload. There's a a magic ratio there, and if you exceed that, then you, you can lose your accreditation. So there's a very small percentage of offices nationwide that have been able to achieve and keep their accreditation in some places where the caseload has skyrocketed. But it was important for us to have that measure on there given at the federal level there's been a lot of push for more accreditation, more certification of investigators, and so we felt that that was a really important thing to be able to look at and say for sure, you know, this is where we are now, and maybe through other efforts, uh, National Institute of Justice, I know, has released several different funding streams to help offices go through accreditation and hopefully achieve it. So Yeah, my understanding is they can access Coverdale funds for that purpose at least. Yeah, there seem to be, as I recall, several questions intended to go after not only the certification of forensic pathologists themselves, but also other professional disciplines. Uh, like definitely there was uh, ABFT for toxicological uh, certification is also going to be examined at least. Exactly. As well as um, medical legal death investigators, so ABMDI was the other one that was really important because, again, these investigators do a lot of work for these offices, and it's important that we are able to speak to their level of certification too. ABMDI, name and IACME have been really supportive of this survey, and we really appreciate all that they're doing to promote it. So the process for how these surveys get developed is very important to BJS. I know that you all are are very conscious about how they get constructed. They have to be reviewed by the Office of Management and Budget and the executive branch. And uh, you all also make sure that you've kind of dry run a few things. So can you kind of outline the methodology that BJS has in terms of the expectation here? We've referred to a couple of things, but if you can kind of talk about expectations from your all's perspective on the quality of the instrument. So we did a data quality assessment of the 2004 instrument and the data that came from it. We looked for questions that were problematic, that had high item missingness, or um, that were otherwise problematic to keep in the data set. So we didn't want to get rid of them necessarily just because they had high item missingness. We wanted to see if they were maybe bad questions or misunderstood questions. So we conducted an expert panel review that included medical examiners, coroners, and a toxicologist, as well as uh, survey methodologists to assess where we should go from there. This also included whether or not the questions were relevant to the field, some of the um, databases that we referred to just a few minutes ago, we didn't include those on the 2004, some of them might not have been around, but these practitioners told us we should be asking about these things, so we made sure the measures were up to date. We revised this and kind of did a rough spec draft that we sent out to another 14 offices, which included medical examiners and coroners. We went to test how well the questions performed, whether or not they understood what we were asking, whether we were asking it clearly enough, whether we had our terminology correct. Based on that, we further refined the instrument to a point where we're comfortable going out. And we have a balancing act between having an instrument that's very detailed and gets all the information we could possibly want and burden. Mm-hmm. Burden is very important to us. We try to make it as low as possible for respondents. This comes out with a 90-minute burden, which is the same as the 2004 instrument. One thing I would add that, that really struck me about the expert panel meeting was that our experts really thought it was important 
to just look at access questions. So if you had access to certain resources. So we've talked a little bit about the databases, but some of our expert panelists came from places where mass fatalities had happened. So they were really interested in yes or no kinds of questions. Does your office participate in county statewide emergency response drills? Because it's an easy question to answer yes or no, but it really speaks to how ready we are. We live in North Carolina, John, and we know that every year we're going to have a hurricane, right? Sure, yeah. Pretty much. Mm -hmm. um, and it's funny because in, in surveys, we often find that hurricanes do impact us. I remember Hurricane Sandy impacting a survey. You just, you sort of have to wonder if, if these are the people in our community who are going to be responding when bad stuff happens, if, you know, there isn't some sort of emergency response in place that they've, a drill that they've participated in. It's yeah, good information. Absolutely. So, you know, that's just one example, but there are other ones, yes and no questions, where, you know, we've looked at whether they've had training with bloodborne pathogens. Proper lifting procedures is a huge issue for the technicians within those offices. So those were other access types issues that we really wanted to be able to speak to in the survey. So stress management is another one that the expert panels members really thought was important. So a lot of the questions have been organized to be very much of yes or no, as well as like where they might get these resources from, whether it's through a partner agency or whether they provide it in-house or not at all. For those of you who are regular listeners, uh, you'll know that uh, John Fudenberg, who was the coroner of Clark County, Nevada, was actually on Just Science and discussed their response to the mass fatality shooting that occurred in Las Vegas here just, uh, I guess, in late 2018. And John was on your expert panel. He was. We also had Bobby Joe O'Neill from Charleston, who responded to the church shooting. So, you know, two people who, you know, can really speak to the need for when something happens on, on a broader scale than just, you know, one one death. And you, you have to have partners in the community who can, you know, come in and help. Roger one, of, one of your panel members is Ruth Winokur from North Carolina, actually. Uh, she had been the chief toxicologist in uh, North Carolina, is now uh, helping us at RTI. She is uh, working at RTI for on the, the National Laboratory Certification Program. And uh, we had sub several other members as well. And Bobby Joe O'Neill was also on the podcast talking about the importance of uh, the sexual assault nurse examiner process in death investigation. So uh, I know that she's been involved in several key incidents, not just uh, the church shooting, but also uh, some, uh, they also had a fairly substantial fire uh, incident that was a very, very difficult uh, set of circumstances for them in South Carolina. For sure. And, and joining those two wonderful experts were um, five more great experts, including Carla Knight-Dees from the Lancaster County Coroner's Office in South Carolina, Kelly Keyes, the Orange County Coroner in California, Dr. Robert Mitchell from the D.C. Um, Medical Examiner's Office, and Dr. Deborah Radish from the North Carolina Office of the Medical Examiner. Well, that's really great because you got a nice mix of both medical examiners and, and coroners. I will say, and it's just, uh, just my own perception, that the uh, medical examiner and coroner systems, I think, are doing a much, much better job of collaborating these days than they were in 2004. And I think with the idea being, it's, it's, it's really not about what your label is. It's about the kind of work you do and making sure that you have you know, the, the quality in place, the accreditation, and the resources necessary to do the job. Yes, for sure. And 
the collaboration between our expert panel members as well as the cognitive interview, they were just very helpful with us going through the survey and, and identifying those key areas. And, and it's interesting with our cognitive interviews where we were looking at the survey across those seven medical examiners and seven coroner's offices, they would often speak to the other's camp. Well, you know, the, if you ask the question in this way, a coroner might um, use this language versus our medical examiner's office would use this language. And the same would be true when we would ask coroners to weigh in on particular questions. They would speak to kind of both sides. So it was really nice to see and helpful. We touched a little bit on the opioid epidemic, one of the other things that's uh, certainly different from 2004. At that time, the uh, homegrown methamphetamine lab issue was just emerging. That's now really changed enormously. And in the last several years, of course, everyone is familiar with the uh, vast explosion of the of opioids, and in particular, with respect to uh, death investigation, it's becoming very, very critical. Uh, NAME had put out some uh, guidelines about opioid death investigation that they're actually updating as we speak five years ago. And so this is a, it's a major issue, and you all are going to be focusing some of your survey instrument on things regarding opioids, but also this, the broader issues with respect to toxicological examination. Yes. One of the things on the NIFLIS project that we found, because we are looking at medical examiner and coroner offices as a, an additional expansion program on NIFLIS, and one of the things that we did for that project is that we went out and talked to coroner offices and medical examiner offices about what their process and procedures would be. And I think some of the concern, especially in rural coroners, offices with small budgets is they can't do an autopsy every time. And those are some of the areas that are getting hardest hit by the opioid epidemic. And so the strategy is, because a toxicology test is going to be a whole lot cheaper than a full autopsy, is they would take a sample and do the best they could to do an investigation, but that's all they really could afford. And of course, those standards that you mentioned for opioid deaths include a full autopsy, but if your budget is 37000 a year, part of that includes your salary, how many autopsies can you really perform? So the median budget back in 2004 was $37,000 and some change, I believe, for coroner offices in rural areas, which is not a lot of money. Right. Um, if you think about a, an autopsy being at least two to $5,000. So it's, we really wanted to speak to what kinds of policies and procedures are in place. So one of the things that we've asked about is the use of um, reference laboratories so there are a few measures for which we're looking at whether at the death scene, external examination, or at autopsy, whether the office performs drug screening tests. And again, it's a yes or no question with the skip pattern. And then we also ask about whether they go to confirmation if there's a positive result. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things that we were looking at, as well as whether their strategy for investigating these types of deaths has changed given the opioid epidemic. In the 2004 survey, there was a fair amount of uh, work on looking at the unidentified dead. So are we going to have uh, some updated information in that area as well? Yes, absolutely. One of the figures that cited most from the 2007 report yeah. was that in an average year, there are about 4,400 unidentified human decedents. A thousand of these remain unidentified after a year, and about 600 undergo final disposition as unidentified. And that's been cited in quite a few sources. So that's definitely a data point that we're going to catch. And we did not change that question substantially from how it was asked in 2004. So they should be very comparable. 
Yeah, just to make sure that we've clarified for folks listening, the older report was published in 2007, but was in reference to data that was collected about 2004. So that's so if you if you hear us going back and forth, but the data was collected in 2005. Just like this current survey is going to be relative to 2018 data, and we're collecting it in 2019, and it'll be published here going forward once all the data has been collected and analyzed. Correct. We're looking for a 2020 publication date. I want you to know Connor gave a very close look at Hope to make sure that she was on, on, on target there with respect to when that data gets out to the field. I think because for us, we just want to push it out faster. So we'll do the best we can um, <laughs> to get it out as soon as possible because we know that it's really relevant to the field and um, that information is just needed. You know, the other thing, John, I wanted to bring up is in the 2004 administration, we had um, a series of questions about sudden unexpected infant deaths. And so over time, those investigations have improved in terms of, you know, the resources, the technologies used. So there's a list of questions. There's an extensive set of questions an about that? An extensive set of questions about that, including, you know, scene or doll reenactments, comprehensive forensic toxicology screens, whether there's child or infant death review panels, genetic testing, metabolic screens. And so that was another place where our experts really came in and gave us great feedback on what, what's important for that question. And Agencies like CDC, but also state public health and local public health agencies will probably be really interested to see what kinds of data come out of that, that line of questions. Absolutely. That's, of course, a, a very important uh, set of cases also for the medical legal death investigation community. One of the other concerns here also, of course, there have been some significant changes on the survey. You are hoping to be able to relate data from the older survey into the, the newer survey. But of course, you also had to do a fair amount of updating given the, the gap that's occurred in time. Right. And one of the bigger changes, I think, is for the first time we're asking about the number of cases referred and accepted from tribal lands, which we're, we're pretty happy to have added to the survey. That's not a data point that we know much about. And so this will be the first time we're collecting that in detail. The those numbers might have been included in 2004, but we didn't ask about them specifically, so we can't really speak to them. We're hoping in this iteration to get a good bead on the numbers of cases are, that are coming from tribal lands. And Hope, I know one of the other things that we're hoping to do is to make sure that we keep this data as public as possible. So uh, as you mentioned, it's a very uh, well-referenced and cited uh, set of information, and a lot of this data will be available for post-analysis after the completion of the study. That is correct. So RTI will work in conjunction with BJS to develop a public data set that will be included in the National Archive of Criminal Justice data, NACJD. The majority of BJS data collections are available through that website. Oh, okay, very good. To wrap up, let's talk a little bit about the respondents, because this really is a focus on the people who are going to be responding to the survey. We really obviously want to get everybody recruited to talk to your local medical examiner and coroner and encourage him or her to respond. But with respect to their responses, what if they're uh, uncertain about how to answer or what the definitions are? What resources are going to be available to them to make sure they give you the highest quality answer as possible? That's an excellent question. So if there on the web survey and they're going through and they see that there's something that's unclear, 
there will be little boxes that they can look at, little pop-up boxes. For the most part, any time that there's any issue, we would really want to strongly encourage them to call our help desk. And so we'll have that staffed to be able to answer any questions they have about the survey or if they're having trouble with their login credentials, any kinds of technical issues like that, we would be able to answer. And those kinds of things are very important. I was having lunch with Victor Whedon a few days ago, and he was like, I, I really think we need to be very careful about our definitional aspects with the medical examiner coroner survey. I know you all spend a lot of time on that, and I hope people do take advantage of the help desk so that they uh, can make sure they're giving the most accurate answers possible. Yeah, the definitions are a huge part of that. We'll have a frequently asked questions guide for the people who are going to be staffing the help desk. Jerry Rapero-Miller is going to be instrumental in helping us get that language down to a T so that it's very easily understood by whoever calls. So thank you all for being on Just Science today. We were very, very uh, happy to have Dr. Uh, Smiley McDonald with RTI International as the project director for CMEC, and Connor Brooks, who's the program manager at the Bureau of Justice Statistics, on this particular uh, survey. So thank you, Connor, and thank you, Hope, for being on the show. Thank, thank you, you John. And thank you all for listening. Please uh, make sure that you give us lots of thumbs up and also uh, access our resources on ForensicCOE.org and make sure you tell your friends and colleagues about Just Science and all of the great resources that we provide to improve forensic science practice. Thank you very much. If you're interested in learning more about a variety of other topics related to the forensic sciences, join our newsletter listing and follow the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. The next season will include topics in DNA. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.